Listeners should be advised that some of the content in this episode of Inside the Crime could be distressing to some. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we learned what punishment the judge saw fit for the Christmas morning murders of Sharon Whelan and her two girls. He handed down two uh, concurrent life sentences to Brian Hennessy in relation to Zara and Nadia and then a consecutive sentence in relation to Sharon. Christy and Nancy Whelan went home to Wine Gap that evening, safe in the knowledge that the man who raped and strangled their daughter before killing their precious granddaughters wouldn't taste freedom again for a very long time. But like all horror stories, there will be another twist in this tragic tale. Well, I was driving and my phone rang and I pulled in the car and I stopped and there was a guard for me and said that Brian Hennessy won his appeal. He'd only got to get one life sentence. And I says, what do you mean? And he says, this has to be an overturn. How I wasn't told when he says, I'm telling you now, he says. Brian Hennessy only has one life to give for the three he took. That's why his sensational sentence was so easily overturned on appeal. And as we learned in the last episode, life doesn't really mean life in the Irish justice system, in the sense that he's unlikely to spend the rest of his days in prison. In fact, he's already applied for parole. And while he wasn't successful at the first time of asking, the Whelans know someday he will be given a second chance. Sharon and the girls won't and Nancy feels she's the one serving the life sentence. I can't stop talking to the girls up at the grave. I see no light at the end of the tunnel. He, he do. I was always bubbly, wasn't I, John? Hmm. I'm not the same person anymore. No. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll take a look at how our closest neighbours deal with those who kill in the most depraved and despicable of ways. Do judges in the UK have more power when it comes to sentencing murderers? What punishment would Brian Hennessy be handed if he found himself before a Crown Court? What about our friends in the US? How would he have fared there? Where there's a political will, there's always a way. But is there an appetite for change here? And if so, how would that even come about? In this final chapter of our story, we'll also take you back to Wine Gap, back to Christy and Nancy, to their home, and to their angel's final resting place. We'll remember them and find out what the Whelans hope their legacy will be. I'm on my way to Marconi House, the home of News Talk in the heart of Dublin City. Hi, Tony. How's it going? Good, That's Tony, the friendliest doorman in town. I'm on my way to interview solicitor-turned-writer Leo Goatley. His name mightn't ring a bell, but the name of one of his former clients might. Rose West. In 1971, Rose West murdered her eight-year-old stepdaughter, Charmaine. And for the best part of the next two decades... She collaborated with her husband, Fred West, to rape, torture and murder at least nine other girls and young women. In 1995, she was convicted of all ten murders, following one of Britain's most horrific trials. 
Fred died by suicide in prison after being charged with 12 murders. Most of their victims' bodies were found buried under their house of horrors in Gloucester, a city in the west of England where Leo plied his trade as a solicitor for over 30 years. Here, he explains the sentence handed down to Rose. In effect, the minimum term that would be served before parole was determined by the Home Secretary, a politician, and that was decided on the basis of the trial judge, Mr Justice Mantell, had said in sentencing Rose West that in his view she should never be released. And the Lord Chief Justice at the time, Lord uh, Chief Justice Taylor, uh, intimated a minimum term of 25 years. And that was in 1996. In 1997, Jack Straw, the new Labour Home Secretary, decreed that it would be a whole life tariff. Now, the history, um, just the way the law has evolved in England and Wales, makes things slightly complicated in the case of West because there was a case in 2003 where the House of Lords decided that it was against Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which relates to the fairness of a trial, for a politician to be the ultimate arbiter of what the... Uh, mandatory sentence should be. So in the light of that, there was new le legislation, the Criminal Justice Act in 2003, which brought in uh, a sound and elaborate sentencing structure, uh, which dealt uh, with how mandatory sentences for murder should be determined. And so 97, Rosewest already declared to have a whole life then this raft of guidelines came in for future cases. And it's interesting, when you look at the nature of Rose West and the murders she was involved in, 10 murders of uh, young women, well, firstly, in order to get a whole life tariff, you have to be 21 years or older. Well, for six of the murders Rose West was convicted of, she was under 21. So it meant, in effect, to comply with the subsequent guidelines, there were four murders that were relevant. Through the sentence handed down to Rose West, we can learn a lot about the UK's approach to sentencing in general. So let's unpack that a bit. In effect, the minimum term that would be served before parole was determined by the Home Secretary, a politician. So back in the mid-90s, the UK government had a role to play in the sentencing of serious criminals. But that practice ended in 2003 with the introduction of new laws. Like us here in Ireland, the sentence for murder in the UK is a mandatory one. But unlike us here in Ireland, judges across the water have far more say when it comes to how long a person should spend in prison. For starters, if a murder satisfies certain criteria, as set down in law, they can send the killer away for the rest of their lives. As Leo now explains. Someone would need to be over 21 and among other things, the, the offence should be for two or more murders and there should be an element of, for example, abduction, premeditation and sadistic or sexual conduct. England's whole life orders stoked public debate again last week when a man called David Fuller was handed one for strangling two young women in Kent and sexually abusing the bodies of at least 100 others in hospital mortuaries where he worked. In a statement that echoed the final words uttered by the judge to Rose West at her sentence hearing, 
the judge who sentenced Fuller told him he'd spend the rest of his life in prison. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson tweeted afterwards to say he hoped some comfort could be taken from that. However, even in England, it's not a foregone conclusion. It can't be. A few years ago, a whole-life prisoner called Gary Vinter and two others took a case to Europe. They argued that to strip all hope away from a prisoner, to essentially lock the door and throw away the key, was a breach of their human rights. Europe agreed, and reviews of such sentences were put in place. That decision made many British politicians angry. They felt it was another example of Europe sticking its nose in where it doesn't belong. I won't use the B word on this pod, but here Leo explains how life could once again mean life in English courts. Of course, Britain is no longer in the European Union. And the politicians have said that, yes, we will still be bound by the European Convention on Human Rights. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, the government has to follow everything, the case law from Strasbourg, for example. So you have to watch this space because things can change. Okay, um, what what are your own thoughts then on on whole life orders? I mean, you would have seen them um, well, close, obviously. Well, I think that, um, in these terrible cases, they're appropriate. Uh, and why should anyone expect anything else, really? Yeah. So um, you you do think you do think, Leo, that there are some cases, Rose West um, included, that do warrant um, a person to spend their life behind bars. I think so. I mean, she's only with the death of Mara Hindley. I think she's only one of two women, I may be wrong on that. Uh, there are, I think there are about 75, maybe a few more, who are on these whole life tariffs in in England and Wales. And I suppose rehabilitation is the same in the UK, you'd imagine. It's one of the main aims of sentencing here, one of them. Um, yes. Do you think it affected her or the possibility of her, you know, being rehabilitated? Like, I do wonder if prisoners just give up if there's no light at the end of the tunnel. What's What's your thoughts on that? She's, Rose West seemed to adjust to prison life pretty well. You know, she's got various craft skills. And a lot of this offending happened when she was very young. She was in her early 40s when she was sentenced. And depending on what view you take, I mean, there are forensic psychologists who said that the offending would have carried on. We just don't know about it. But uh, according to the indictment, the last offence would have been uh, several years before she went to trial anyway. So it may be that she viewed it as history she just wanted to, to bury. Um, certainly it's something locked in her mind that she doesn't want to visit because I'm sure actually there's an awful lot more she could say and hasn't. Yeah. Um, do you think it was of some comfort or do you know if it was of some comfort to the families of the women and the girls that she murdered to know that she wasn't going to be coming out of prison? Yeah, I think there was probably a, a sense of justice, but I suppose the the impact, you know, of something so horrific, for someone disappearing all of a sudden, disappearing and not knowing what had happened for 20, 25 years or whatever, and then to discover the horror. I mean, it's it, it's such a, a dreadful nightmare that um, the preoccupation with that, I, I suppose it, there was solace in, in the whole life tariff for those relatives of the tragic victims. Ireland is bound by the European Convention on Human Rights, and rightly so, so whole life orders are never likely to be introduced here. Even with sentencing reviews, the chance of them even being considered is remote. 
And again, our lawmakers are at pains to point out that prisoners can spend the rest of their days behind bars under the existing system. But what about murder cases in the UK where the option of handing down a whole life order isn't on the table? Again, unlike here, their judges can hand down minimum terms a prisoner must serve before they can be considered for parole. Well, if it's particularly serious, it can be up to 30 years, it can be 25 years, or it can be 15 years. You know, there, there are various um, other categories specified that can ramp it up. But as I say, the judges aren't hidebound and are aggravating and mitigating factors. And judges can depart from that criteria as long as they give their written reasons. Mm-hmm. Hopefully some balance is struck and hopefully there is some broad arrival at something that's uh, fair and just. Obviously, from what you're saying, the, the pervading feeling in, in Ireland, is, and it probably reflects Europe's, uh, the wider European perspective, that um, sentences should be shorter rather than longer. It's definitely a more, it seems, liberal regime and the judges' hands are very much tied when it comes to sentencing in murder cases. But the main difference from what you're telling me is that judges over in the UK will have that discretion to hand down a minimum tariff in every case. Is that true? Yeah, as long as they can justify what they're doing. I mean, I, I, is the criteria in Ireland more strictly drawn? Murder has only one sentence in Ireland. A person will be handed a, um, a mandatory life sentence and then it very much becomes a matter for the parole board. They don't come before that parole board for 12 years And they will argue that that's essentially a minimum tariff, a minimum tariff of 12 years, which seems very low for murder cases. You know, over in the UK, anecdotally, would you be able to say, you know, on average, what's the kind of minimum uh, um, tariff that's handed down in murder cases? Would 12 years be considered low? Um, The reality is there is a flexibility. And I mean, the the idea is that the sentence should fit the crime. So if something is really brutal and dreadful and horrific and defies every ounce of human decency, then obviously it's going to be, it should be much more. When you look at the English justice system, you're looking at over a thousand years of legal evolution and it has evolved considerably from its early days when a person's guilt or innocence would be determined by how quickly their hand began to heal after plucking a stone from a cauldron of boiling water. Another popular trial by ordeal involved the accused being tied up and thrown into a lake. If he sank, he was innocent, float, and it's off with his head. It has evolved, but it's still not perfect. So we decided to look elsewhere. All right, Frank, you've got Dean on the line there. Great stuff. Thanks, Ashley. Dean, hi, it's Frank here. I hope you're well. Thanks so much for joining us on what is a bitterly cold Saturday evening here in Dublin. I hope the weather is a bit kinder where you are. A grey, blustery afternoon, yes. A couple of things that we've been, I suppose, loosely talking about. Dean Strang is a criminal defence lawyer in Madison, Wisconsin. You may remember him from the Netflix series Making a Murderer. He was one of Stephen Avery's attorneys. We've been in touch quite a bit over email and Dean has kindly agreed to walk us through the somewhat complex sentencing system in the United States. Can you give us an overview of sentencing guidelines when it comes to murder cases on your side of the pond and what options are open to judges um, over there or are their hands somewhat tied to when it comes to sentencing in these types of cases? 
the judge's hands very often are tied at, at sort of the other end of the spectrum over here. Um, we've got essentially three punishment schemes for murder in the United States. Uh, 27 states still have capital punishment. The reality is that very few of those states with capital punishment actually use it with any regularity or even impose a death sentence. You know, but for more than half the United States, um, under state law, death is at least a possibility for an intentional murder. So that's one category. The next sort of category down is some states, I think almost all states at this point, use what we call life without parole, either as a required sentence for an intentional murder conviction or more commonly as an available sentence. And life without parole is what it means, which is you'll just never be eligible for release. The way out is to die in prison. And then finally, the lowest, if you will, punishment for intentional murder in the U.S. is a life sentence. And the what you call a minimum tariff, and we would call parole eligibility on a life sentence, varies considerably from state to state. And then within that lowest, if you will, category of murder sentences, some states allow a judge to increase the eligibility date for parole consideration um, to a date of his or her choosing, a period of years of his or her choosing, with the statutory eligibility being the floor. Other states simply leave parole eligibility to the statutes and then ultimately to an executive branch uh, entity called the Parole Commission or the Parole Board, depending on the state. So does that give you an adequate overview, Frank? It it really does. And, and it's very interesting to hear it because it's very different uh, over here. You mentioned that you couldn't possibly sum up um, the varying systems in 50 different states, but I might ask you specifically about the one that you practice in, uh, Wisconsin. You spoke about parole eligibility um, off the top of your head. Do you know what that is set at in Wisconsin? I do. I do. Um, and the succinct answer to your question is statutory parole eligibility for a life sentence in Wisconsin is... 13 years and four months. Now, the reality for the last two, three decades has been that nobody convicted of our equivalent of, of murder um, actually gets released before about 21 years. That's, that's as early as I've heard of anybody being released. Wisconsin's one of those states where the judge can increase the parole eligibility date up to and including never. Okay. So we have the uh, the available option of life without parole in Wisconsin, and there are, there are a number of people serving a sentence of life without parole because the judge just decided they would never be eligible. The fifty states of America are far from united when it comes to sentencing murderers, and the difference between them can vary wildly. 
So we decided to just focus on Wisconsin. Not just because it's Dean's hometown, but also because it doesn't have the death penalty, so that won't muddy the waters. And it's somewhere in the middle of the pack when it comes to the average time murderer spends in prison in the US. So it's a good example to use for the purpose of our chat. As Dean said, lifers in Wisconsin can apply for parole after 13 years and 4 months, but rarely get it before at least 21 years are served. Our gate is set at 12 years, and the average time served is about 20 years. Same same, so far. But where the real difference between us lies again is in the discretion of judges when it comes to sentencing. Judges in Wisconsin can look at the specifics of any given case and increase the minimum time to be served if they see fit. They also have the option of handing down a life sentence without parole, something Dean's not a fan of. Well, you know, I can't answer in the absolute that uh, a whole life sentence, a sentence of life without parole would never be justifiable. For my own view, if, if you and you are asking for my view, is that um, the refusal to, to even consider releasing somebody on parole should be rare, if not um, un, unknown uh, in the US. I think in general, our sentences are just too harsh. They're just too long from top to bottom. I and mean, you know, we're talking about the most serious crime and nobody would argue that should go lightly punished. But, um, you know, from there all the way down to misdemeanor offenses in the U.S., we're just an extraordinarily punitive country. And the, the data bear that out. You can compare us to almost any other country, certainly in the developed world. And we've got by far the longest sentences. I, I think it makes very little sense personally to keep an 80-year-old locked up in prison, um, with, which, which is enormously expensive and difficult to do. But we now have prisons with geriatric wards in the U.S. because of our extremely harsh ideas of sentencing in this country. And again, I, I have to leave open the possibility for the, the pedophile who remains incorrigibly interested in offending against children. I have to, you know, I have to sort of leave the door open for the uh, murderer who's sociopathic and remorseless and and would be would be a danger on the street at 80 years old. Uh, you know, there, there's probably somebody like that out there somewhere. But for myself, the way I would handle that is not by denying eligibility for parole, but rather relying on the executive authorities, the executive branch authorities to say, nope, we can't parole this person. Mm -hmm. He may be 80, but he's still demonstrably violent um, or a risk to children for example. If a system gives a judge the power to take away someone's freedom, then it must build proper safeguards to right or wrong if they make a mistake. A well-oiled appeals process is a vital cog in the justice machine, vital to ensure sentences are both fair and proportionate. I asked Dean what safeguards, 
if any, exist in the U.S. system? Very few as a practical matter. Um, unlike the U.K. for one example, probably Ireland for another, U.S. appellate courts have almost no role in reviewing the propriety of a sentence. They are allowed to ask whether the sentence exceeded the statutory maximum, which of course it never does. The only review U.S. appellate courts can give to state court sentences generally is, was it an abuse of discretion? And there's great deference given to the trial judge in that respect. Now, Frank, I have to add a an asterisk to that, okay? Which is in states that have sentencing guidelines, which is not all states, but some states here have sentencing guidelines with aggravating factors and mitigating factors and points assigned to the severity of the offense and points accrued for prior criminal history, or if you have none, you know, that's a plus. Um, but in states that have sentencing guideline schemes, courts of appeals can look at whether the judge correctly calculated the sentencing guideline range. But usually, again, the sentence the judge actually chose is left to the broad discretion of the trial judge. Sentencing guidelines. Leo mentioned them earlier too. And work is already underway to introduce our own set of them here in Ireland. Over the years, judges have been guided by decisions made by higher courts. But they only cover a narrow range of crimes. So one of the reasons the Judicial Council was set up two years ago was to give them more help across a wider spectrum of offences. Of course, there's no need for them in murder cases because our judges only have one sentencing option at their disposal. Remember last week when we spoke about how the Law Reform Commission recommended that judges be allowed to come up with minimum terms for lifers? Well, the Department of Justice has confirmed to us that it was considered, and in the end, it was decided to put a minimum tariff of 12 years into the legislation. If you look carefully at the new law, it also requires the Parole Board to have regard to any recommendation of the course that imposed the sentence. So judges can make recommendations but they're just that, recommendations, which the board isn't bound by and is free to accept or reject. From talking to Leo and Dean, I was reminded of something John Whelan said to me a while back about the man who killed his sister and nieces. Say this happened in England. Brian Hennessy would be on a whole life order right now, without a shadow of a doubt. And I'm asking the question, why do we not have that here? You know, what is... The problem with that. I think if you asked any citizen in this country, should life mean life for this type of crime? I would say the vast majority would say yes. As always, John raises some interesting questions. It's hard to tell where public opinion lies when it comes to locking people up for the rest of their lives, even for the most serious of crimes. We did a 24-hour poll on Twitter, and of the 245 people who took part, 90% voted in favour of them. Every opinion matters, but 245 is just a drop in the ocean. It only offers the smallest of snapshots, and a blurry one at that. 
Again, even if it was a runner, Europe has already decided that removing hope from a prisoner's mind is an inhuman punishment. John's prediction on how Brian Hennessy would have been punished if he did what he did in England is also food for thought. So after giving Leo as much detail as I could about the background to this case, I asked him how he thinks a judge in his homeland would have handled it. Three murders. There was premeditation. Uh, you know, there was serious sexual assault and uh, an arson that would at least endanger life. I suppose he might have said he didn't intend to kill the, the, the children or didn't know they were in the house. Um, so it would be at the very high end. It would be... It, it would be, it would be it would surprise me if it wasn't at, at least anyway at a 30-year starting point. And if we'd never offended before or if, you know, there were any other... Difficult to know what mitigating factors there might have been, but if there were, that might have brought it down. But it would have been about that. It wouldn't have been... That's interesting that you say that, you know, 30-year starting point. We spoke earlier about the criteria that are needed to satisfy this whole life tariff. Do you think he would have ticked those boxes? I mean, he was over 21. There was an element of premeditation, um, multiple murders. And he did know, as it turns out, that those two girls were in the, in the house. And in fact, the reason that he set the fire was to cover his tracks and essentially destroy the evidence. And he wanted people to think that this was an accident. It could have gone into the whole life. That's true. Clearly serious sexual assault, sexual conduct. It was obviously premeditation. So it was at the, right at the top end, I've no doubt, in this country. Whether it had resulted in a whole life, I don't know. But it, it, it sounds as on the criteria that it would have been up there. What about the U.S.? For completeness, I also asked Dean how a judge there would have dealt with Brian Hennessy's case. That would be first degree intentional homicide. In Wisconsin, it would be murder, or as it's often called in the U.S., first degree murder um, or capital murder, depending on the state. It would it would be the highest level of homicide as to at least um, the mother, um, the deaths of the two girls would be intentional homicides in the US, again, if the defendant knew that the children were asleep when you set fire to the home. That, that would satisfy intentional homicide in the US. And this kind of triple murder, uh, where there's long premeditation, you know, at least, uh, again, assuming the evidence bears out the proposition that he knows there are two little girls asleep. Mm -hmm. That sort of premeditation would make this a capital murder, and the fact that it's a triple murder would make it a capital murder in almost every state that has capital punishment. Now, that doesn't mean you get the death penalty, um, because in death cases here, in most states, the jury has, I think in all states, the jury has at least a, an advisory role on the sentence. And in some states, the jury has the final say on whether it'll be a death sentence or a life sentence. And with that in mind, I suppose my next question is, you know, if somebody like Brian Hennessy came before the courts in Wisconsin, um, is he facing a life sentence without parole in the absence of that capital punishment? Well, the universal rule here really with, I would struggle to come up with an exception for you, is that if you kill more than one person, you're going to get consecutive life sentences for each death. So in, in the U.S., it would be sort of, 
I, I think, anathema culturally to say, well, the three people died, but in effect, two of those deaths don't matter. <laughs> or, or, you know, you get three for the price of one. Um, that just, that would culturally just wouldn't, wouldn't be easily grasped. To know that Brian Hennessy would most likely serve a harsher sentence if this happened across the Irish Sea or on the other side of the Atlantic is of cold comfort to the Whelans. Locking him up forever would bring them some comfort, it seems, a sense of justice perhaps, but they know better than anyone that it wouldn't bring Sharon, Zara and Nadia back. Morning. We're on the road again, back to Wine Gap. The sights and sounds of Christmas are everywhere, but you won't find a flicker of it in Christy and Nancy's house. They haven't celebrated it since they lost Sharon and the girls. It's a bit tough. Yeah, I think it is. We don't do Christmas mm. anymore. Just the, the one coming up now is the 13th Christmas. Then mm. we don't want, we don't want Christmas. I used to love it. I used to love bringing up to Santa. I used to love going around the chair. And she used to love picking out lights. It was her, it was her whole world, you know what I mean? Getting things for the kids and making sure they got what they wanted, what they were looking for. And she, wherever she traveled, she'd have to get it, you know? Yeah. The lights she have all around the place, and the Christmas tree, and the lot. It was such a big thing with Sharon that I can't even look at lights now in the last 13 years. She was kind of like me, because I was so happy uh, about Santa for all the kids. Whatever, the, wherever I could afford a tower, they had to get it. You know what I mean? I do everything myself, like to. Give them what they wanted. The house was always decorated. It, you know, was, women used to all go up. It used to be always three. Used to be always put in, like you know, it was always a tradition. When it was at home, like you know, always had the ribbons up and all the place decorated for Christmas, like you know, it was, it was absolutely lovely. They say time is a great healer. That tomorrow is another day. But as the Whelans approach the thirteenth anniversary of that dreadful Christmas morning they sometimes feel like they're frozen in time. They're still haunted by what Brian Hennessy did, still devastated by what he took. They all remember the last time they spoke to Sharon as if it was yesterday. Myself and my wife Sandra were in, in Carlo and we were actually driving out towards Ken Black's to get the last few bits and pieces for, for the kids for Christmas. And I got a phone call from Sharon and she says to me, um, I want to get this game for Ben for the PlayStation. Ben is me, me oldest chap. Uh, he would have been 10 at the time. And she says to me, I want to know, does he have this game? Um, and I said, uh, no, he doesn't. I, I know he doesn't because I, I know the games he'd have. And she said, it's, uh, I, know, I know he's 10, but this is a 12s game. Is that okay? Yeah, I said, no, it's fine because I, I knew the game or whatever, but she'd always check make sure that she wasn't going to upset me or Sandra or anything, that it was going to be done right, you know. 
Um, and I said, no, Jesus, he'd love that. He'd absolutely love that. And she says, grand. She said, I didn't want to be getting something that he already had. I said, no, that's grand, Sharon. That'd be brilliant, you know. She said, okay. So that was the, I think that was the 23rd. That was my birthday, actually. The last time I was talking to her. The 23rd of December, that evening. Christmas Eve, she rang me three times. And um, first call was tell Dad not to come down yet, she said, because they're hyper. Especially Zara, she said. She thinks that Santi's going to come and eat the carrot anytime, you know, mm-hmm. and the glass of milk. And she was she wanted to see him doing it, you know. And um, I said to Sharon, look, Sharon, when they're asleep, call back your call. And in about an hour and a half after she called back, they must be hyper all the time. And she called back and she said, tell Dad the coast is clear. And when I, when I think of this now, I get shivered up my back to think of our poor voice, saying that the coast was clear. Maybe he was prowling around and we didn't know it. When, when he went down and gave her hand to in the things and she was tipped one in the case they'd hear her. And she closed the door and he came out. He didn't, he didn't leave until the door was closed. And the phone rang again. And ma'am, she says to me, ma'am, I've all my bills paid. No, and she said, I have somebody. She said, from to go to Linda. That was the next night, Steve's night. And I said, that's lovely, Sharon. I said, I might, I'll be busy. Not knowing I'd never have her again. I dropped down there that evening to her and as you go down to the house there was a little hill and I was just going down the hill and I turned off the lights and I handed in Sharon that place and there was a box and she said I leave that there now she said I won't open it because Sarah might hear it she said you know might waken her and she says I'll put the other ones down at the table and she said I'll see you in the morning At some point in our lives, we'll all be touched by grief. It's inevitable, uncontrollable and brutally unpredictable. It can darken the brightest of days and sweep you away when you least expect it. But the grief that lives with the Whelans is unimaginable. You wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. And even after spending all this time with them, I still can't even begin to understand what they're going through. People... You know, they say to you in a, in, a, in a very, you know, genuine way that you know, time time heals everything. No. You know, and I know the sentiment and I appreciate the sentiment, but time doesn't heal. No, you just exist. What time does is time, time gives you, time allows you to live, to adjust and live your life in a separate way with the grief. It's not going to go away. Uh, it's always going to be there, but it's, it's, how you, it's how you live with it and how you choose to live with it. You know, and I suppose I, I have chosen to live with it in such a way that I suppose through the campaign work I do to try and get things changed. And I suppose it, 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 it does, there is a tie back to the actual time of losing the guys where I became very task focused to keep myself going from day to day I was focusing on the practical things that had to be done like I said earlier on while pushing the 
grief back as far as I could for as long as I could because stuff had to be done. Let's get that done first and whatever. But I was just running away from it. Um, and I suppose in the last few years, I've come to realise that, that um, even through the campaign and, and trying to highlight the, the inequality in the justice system for victims and their families, um, that's, again, that's me being task-focused and, you know, doing this to, to try and... That's my way of managing the reef. You know, just listening to your stories and following it through my job, I honestly don't know how you get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. Um, how you guys get up and go to the grave every morning and keep that tradition alive every day when not so long ago, you know, you were bringing Huizara to school. Um, John, how, how do you do that? Like, how do you keep going? It's not, it's not easy, uh, but I think for me, it's about focusing on what I have, not what I've lost. Um, I very much focus on my boys, my wife, my family, what I have, what I've learned from everything from this tragedy is that life is very short. Life is such a precious thing. And you only realize how precious it is when someone you love so much has it taken away from them. And I think you mentioned, you said something in earlier on, Frank, where we, we spoke about taking away the, what might have been. And that's, that's, that's really hard to kind of explain what that feels like, to have that potential taken away. But how do I manage? I manage day to day, I manage hour to hour, I manage, again, focus on what I have. Um, and I always say that to you on the phone, don't I? I sometimes I feel a bit down. Yeah. I dream, I uh, what do I tell you to do? <laughs> yeah, you need to focus on Yeah, ma'am, ma'am, you have to focus on what you have. Focus on her and Aaron and John's boys and all that. And I know everyone differs. I know in my own case, when I go to um, back home and I go to my father's grave, yeah. I don't, I don't really feel my dad's presence there because... My dad was always in the house taking care of my mum and I really feel his presence yeah. there, but how important is it for you to be able to go to the graveyard every morning and... I said the morning I'm not able to go. I don't know what will happen. You know, I'm thanking God that I'm able to go every morning. We're, we're shoving on, like, you know, and we'd say to each other, come on, we'll, we'll drag on, you know. Sometimes it's very hard. He has pains in his knees and stuff like that. And... We still rang on, we just go up and say our rosary and say, talk to the girls and tell them to come back home with us again, back into the house, because our photographs of them everywhere in the house. I want, to do, I want them with us all the time. Uh, yeah, well, the way I look at it, like um, my dad and my granddad, and I think that <coughs> they need uh, mummy and uh, nanny and a granddad to look after them. I mean, as, as a father, I think I think that was my job, as to try and stay as strong as I could, and stay as strong for the rest of the family. And when it comes to Christmas, I have to try and pull myself together and make a try and make Christmas for my grandchildren. Uh, it's hard, but I think that's what I have to do as a dad and a granddad, to try and look after my family and do it the best I can. And the strength, I guess, is from my wife. 
that we're doing it together. And we know that we have to be there for them because they need us and we need them. And just say, thank God that we're able to get up in the morning and go up to that grave and say our prayers. As I said before, we made a prayer that it is talk every morning that we be at that grave, either rain or snow. Sharon, Zara and Nadia were buried together in Wine Gap Cemetery. The girls are waiting for us, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> the graveyard sits atop a hill, overlooking roll after roll of bright green countryside. Squint, and you'll easily make out some dense forestry in the distance too. Christy and Nancy are effortlessly weaving through the maze of graves leading the way to their angels. At the grave, the first thing I notice is a tiny Santa decoration sitting in the shade of a solid black granite headstone, his red coat faded by the hands of time. Every inch of their grave is marked with angels, flowers, candles and words of kindness from loved ones. I know it's a funny thing to say about a grave, but I'm sure you'd appreciate where I'm coming from. It's beautiful. It's very well taken care of. You can see how loved Sharon and the girls were. You know, there's so much there. And one thing that I've noticed as well is the Christmas theme and a beautiful photo as well. I wonder, Nancy, is that the photograph that was taken that was, there? Uh, that, that's it. That was the Christmas of that's, that's, 08. Yeah. That was it, yeah. Do you mind me asking, Nancy, what's it like here on Christmas morning? Well, Christmas morning we come up here and we stay for a couple, maybe an hour, that because we have no business down in the house crying, you know what I mean? And we're with them here, like, you know. I feel their presence. I feel their presence with me every day. Maybe that's what's keeping me going. And then... We go down for a while to the house, might have a cup of tea, then we go walk up to Linda. We don't have a sign of Christmas in our house. Not a sign. This is your Christmas now? This is Christmas, yeah. It's a sad world. The framed photo of Sharon and the girls with Santa is heartbreaking to look at. Zara and Nadia's little faces, the innocence. They all look so happy. And then you read the engraving beneath it and the reality of the tragedy that befell them and those left behind hits you hard. What strikes me looking at it is just seeing it there engraved on stone, the ages, you know, Zara and that seven and a half. You have Nadia then aged two and a half. That half is so important and you should never see those numbers on graves. People said that to me, that, that half is important. I said, well, it's very important to me, I said. And, it was, and to them. It was Sharon's brother put that, wanted that on the grave, were wrongfully taken from this world on Christmas Day 2008. It was David. David wanted well, that. They were asking us, were we sure no. about the wording? And I said, well, David wants it. And I said, if David wants it, David... David once that, I said. Uh, can I ask you about the the script at the bottom then? Is that a poem that... It is, yeah. It's, it's, uh, actually, 
Nancy found a poem in, in Kilkenny in a, a window, a wasn't it? In a window. I, I read it and I started crying and I said, Christy, we'll have to get that, get yeah. that on the, head, the headstone. But another thing struck me here, they were going around one time with, um, to all the churches and they were carrying, I don't know who was this saint they were carrying on their shoulders. Saint Teresa. They visited all the churches. And they came here and I was in the church and they went around with a basket and they said, put your hand in there now and take out a little prayer. And you take it out and you look at it and you study it. Right? I put in my hand and took out this leaf this, and I just read it. Be not afraid. Three, be not afraid. Number three was that. Number three, be not afraid. I have it below it now. And how did I pick that out of a hundred? I looked at it again, I brought it down, Nancy, I said, Nancy, look what I have it. You know, so I have the below in the hallway there, actually, I kept them like, you know. Do you mind if I go a little bit closer to read the poem? No. Are you sure? Flowers might be in your way, Just down. A goodbye. No farewells were spoken. We did not say goodbye. You were gone before we knew it, and only God knows why. You left us precious memories that made us laugh and cry. But the love you planted in our hearts, no millionaire can buy. And with that, Ashleen and I left Christy and Nancy to pray together at the graveside. They're the ones serving the life sentence. Three life sentences. Three life sentences each, back to back, with no chance of parole. The only temporary release they get is from the memories they now cherish. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. And we'd really like to thank everyone who contributed to this podcast series. Special thanks, of course, to the Whelans, Nancy, Christy and John. You'll never stray far from our thoughts. The word bravery gets thrown around too easily, but you are the epitome of bravery. You're all so much stronger than you think and your angels are with you always. Thank you so much for welcoming us into your homes, into your lives, and for sharing your stories with us. We hope we did them justice. Thanks for listening. To listen to all five episodes of Inside the Crime, just go to newstalk.com forward slash podcasts or check out the Newstalk app. Powered by Go Loud.